Hello, and welcome to A Smart Financial Plan, where we interview the best and brightest in financial planning research on their studies and the best practices financial planners can use with their clients. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Martin C., Department Head of Financial Planning at Kansas State University, regarding his research on how people thought about and invested in real estate in the 2000s prior to the recession, and what lessons we can take away from that economic catastrophe as we look at protecting our clients in the future from other investing risks. I think understanding client behavior and the impact it can have on their investment risk is a critical skill for financial planners, and Dr. C is undoubtedly one of the best in the field in this research area, so you won't want to miss it. Good morning, Dr. C. Thanks for uh, joining me today. Uh, Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are, and what you do? Daniel, it's a pleasure to uh, be with you today uh, and share a little bit about it. And of course, I have to call out and highlight your uh, student at Kansas State. So always great to see you and your good work. So my name is uh, Martin C. I am a department head and professor of associate professor of financial planning at Kansas State University. And I also have the distinct pleasure of being the COVID president of the Financial Planning Association. So the 2020 president of, of FPA. Well, it's, uh, it's just a little bit of a burden and just a little bit of weight to carry uh, in interesting times. Um, so I have you on here today to talk about some research you did a while back in an article you wrote more recently. Uh, what was that called and, and what was that about? Yeah, yeah. So this article was really about understanding how people thought about and invested in real estate across the market of the 2000s. And as you might remember, Uh, The 2000s were a really interesting period in the real estate market uh, for a lot of different reasons from the overlying uh, economic environment, but also housing prices sure shot up quick. And for the first time, you really saw um, housing operating as a a growth asset, um, as as an investment asset. You saw widespread adoption among Americans as investments. And then you saw the housing crash, uh, which um, a lot of Americans uh, felt both in their own homes and those that had extended out into buying rental property. Well, and, and you know, obviously, we, we all, most of us anyway, remember that and remember when that happened and, and what that looked like. Um, part of what made me interested in, in talking to you about it is sort of the, the current environment, right? We're, we're looking at a, a reasonably significant change to what commercial real estate and residential real estate might look like going forward just with uh, greater work from home adoption, you know, sort of that, that same big drop in interest rates and the like, and, and certainly a, a rapidly changing environment. Um, you know, what, what made you want to take a look at it specifically uh, over that time period, maybe outside of why we all just sort of think about it? Yeah, Daniel, so a little bit of background to me. A lot of what you're interested starts early. And I came up from a household uh, that was, um, you might say, um, um, housing rich and cash poor. Um, and we were a well-off family, so I don't, I don't want to give the impression um, that, that, that we were not. Uh, but we always had a large house relative to income and a lot of money uh, went towards that. And so I found a passion from the beginning about understanding the relationship between housing and an individual's finances. And it's really quite amazing. If you look at the literature, you look at folks in this area, housing is largely ignored. Um, uh, and how we view that as a part of a portfolio. And I think it's really important and something that is not talked about enough is We've often viewed housing as more of a conservative investment. For the most part, it's had a relatively low rate of return, although we've seen um, um, spikes, it's sort of gone with the market. 
Um, but one of the things that's really unique about houses, both primary and secondary homes, investment real estate, is the use of mortgages and the leverage that that applies. And you think about all the rules and regulations uh, that we have about leverage, use of leverage in the stock market and things like that. And, and in, in many ways, we encourage it a lot in the housing market. And I bought my first house here uh, in the lovely Manhattan, Kansas with 5% down. And imagine what that does, a 1% growth um, uh, in, in asset value relative to my investment is magnified I think it's something like 20 times. I don't know, I'd have to do the math in my head to get it right, but it's something to that extent. More often you see folks, you know, that put 20% down who the return on, on the value changes quite differently. And that's one thing if you're thinking about being in the house for a long time, that evens out over time, you pay off your mortgage, the volatility of, of those returns um, move down. But we've seen Americans are churning through homes <laughs> a lot more. Uh, the average home is probably, uh, you're saying six or seven years for the primary home. And then, yes, you're seeing a lot more investment by the common man uh, in this uh, an investment property where they really are trying to use it strictly from an investment perspective. And there's all sorts of tax benefits and there's all sorts of things that align with it. And as you've mentioned, it really helps interest rates being low, lowering the cost um, and increasing the uh, ability to buy it. Uh, but I think the risks of of real estate have been have been underappreciated. Well, and so you, something you said before there was a little bit interesting to me, which is you said it's not not well researched. But I mean, home ownership is is quite literally one of those cornerstones of the economy. I mean, it's it's one of the largest uh, financial decisions anybody makes. It's a huge financial commitment. Um, you know, in in some of my own reading and and writing on the subject, I've liked to, to call owning your home sort of the best worst investment you can make. Um, you know, because you've got all those factors of, of forced accumulation that come with it. But uh, I'm curious to know what research you, you weren't seeing in the area that led you to dig deeper into it. Yeah, Daniel, that's a great question. So the vast majority of the literature on home ownership has been from a policy perspective. That is, how do we increase home ownership? How do we deepen it? What are the impacts of home ownership on behavior in society? Uh, by the way, it really helps for community. It really helps for civic involvement. It really helps for a lot of different things, but not so much from the personal finance lens, from an impact on your finances and how you should view that within the context of your overall uh, overall portfolio. And primary home specifically, uh, you can think about a large part of that is consumption. And historically, the majority of houses have been thought of as, uh, as consumption. And the nice benefit is you pay your mortgage off over time and there's a little bit of investments. And what you really saw for the first time in the 2000s with a, with a hot market is a transition to even in primary homes, um, the thought that a part of that primary home uh, was an investment as opposed to, as opposed to that, um, uh, that um consumption, having a place to stay, to call home um, and, and things and things like that. And um, I, I think there's opportunity to think about homeowners and homes from a traditional sense, more from a financial perspective, but especially when you start taking it from being a purely consumption good to an investment good, we've got to make sure we're thinking about that correctly. Sure. So when you went into your research, what did you think you were going to find? What was sort of the hypothesis you were working with at the time? And, and did that come true or were you surprised? 
Yeah, so the concept for this paper was basically, you know, ideally people don't overreact to market trends. Um, you have, uh, if you go back to modern portfolio theory, you have an optimal portfolio, you know what your, um, what, what your distributions um, should be. And uh, yes, there can be some minor changes in the optimal portfolio based off of performance, but you should not see large swings. You should see really a focus on keeping that diversified portfolio and managing that forward. So when we were doing this research, really we wanted to try to see, um, did people overweight in real estate? And if so, who was more likely uh, to do so? Um, and from a, from a strict perspective, we used uh, hypotheses that indicated people would not, but we really did expect uh, there to be changes. And it was interesting to see where it is. And you know, the other thing, Daniel, that's in the literature around, uh, around home ownership is it's a tangent about home and rental real estate investing is it's a tangible asset. And there are, uh, there are segments of the US population that have less trust of banks um, that prefer to have something they can see, trust and feel. Uh, maybe that historically have leaned into that or have more of a desire to put in the sweat equity and sweat labor that often comes uh, with, with real estate. I wanted to pull out some of, of, of that differences. And if you allow me to connect that one step further, there's been a lot of research uh, that's been done that said um, certain segments of the US population and, and oftentimes specifically uh, it's African-American households have been less likely to own risky assets and more likely to own tangible assets. And so I wanted to investigate that. Also with the lens though that rental real estate uh, is a risky asset um, and understand um, is that a replacement in a portfolio? Although there's all sorts of risks um, with with singular houses, especially the large components of portfolios uh, that need to be considered. So I'm I'm curious about that framing of rental properties as risky assets because I think a lot of people think of owning a home as the riskier choice, right? I'm I'm assuming the potential for repairs, for damages, for liability on the property. And if I just had an apartment or a condo somewhere, um, you know, all that stuff would just go away and I wouldn't have to carry the burden. Uh, but something I saw, you know, in my my personal life, this doesn't go back to, to 2000, but uh, there was major flooding in, in my area of Colorado back in 2013. And at the time I lived in an apartment complex and I happened to have re-signed my lease the week prior to the flooding happening. And because so many people became displaced, we saw rents going up over 40% pretty much one week to the next. So I'm, I'm curious about your framing of rental properties as a high risk asset. Cause I, I feel that when I talk to clients and I, I look at their choice and what to put their money into, but there's sort of a, a juxtaposition between the consumer of the rental property versus the owner of the rental property. Yeah, Daniel, that's a really smart framing. Uh, it used to be that homeownership was the holy grail. Um, it was the American dream. It's what we needed to do. And it was very hard, uh, and Americans just, it was very hard that, that renting uh, might be the right thing to do long term. That just isn't, you didn't grow up wanting to be uh, a renter um, in America. It was, it was owning a home that was going to take you there. And that's changed a little bit as Americans have, have changed. Um, and our preferences have changed. Once again, I mentioned that we used to want to stay in a place 20 years. Uh, it was pretty common. Folks would buy a house and they'd live there their entire lives or, you know, at least substantial periods of time 
you, we didn't have a lot of house flopping. Um, the idea of a starter home and second home and third home that you see so much today didn't really, didn't really exist. And that time frame has shortened. And when that time frame shortens, uh, that invariably increases risk. That invariably increases risk when you look at uh, the economy and you look at how things uh, work over time, especially when you look at how mortgages have evolved. You know, historically, it really was 20% down was it. <laughs> and you had fixed rate uh, mortgages where you knew exactly what that payment was going to be. And what you saw in 2000s was some mortgages where it was cash back, zero money down, uh, which uh, from a leverage perspective is um, insane. Uh, you also saw a, a lot more aggressive mortgage products. Uh, another part of my research has looked at the use of interest only mortgages. Uh, which um, which had their place, uh, uh, but also uh, in increased risk exponentially, especially because they were often aligned not with the longtime homeowner, but with somebody that was looking to flip a property. It's really hard to flip a property when prices plummet and you got an interest-only mortgage with a balloon payment. And so the way people have used mortgages can in, uh, and have purchased homes has influenced the riskiness um, of them. So it all goes back to that conversation about what the client's goals really are and what they want to um, live, live into. And they may choose to take on some of that, um, uh, some of that risk. But yeah, you are also right from a, uh, from a cost perspective, uh, renting uh, in some ways does offer um, narrower bounds. Uh, you won't have to replace the you don't have to replace the washing machine or the dryer or well, I guess it all depends on your contract. But um, you also don't have some of the upsides from appreciation that can come. So, so how did you go about doing this research? Were you just walking down the street, knocking on people's doors and asking them how they felt about their mortgage or, or how did you approach this problem? You know, it was really interesting. I used a data set uh, that very few folks have used. Well, the, the reality is, is there's very limited data on a national level about individual households use of rental property. For whatever reason, it's not a question that is asked a lot. When it is, it's typically in smaller samples or it's with, uh, with specific type of maybe high net worth folks. So what I ended up uh, using is called the Survey of Income and Program Participation, which is something that's put out by the Census Bureau. And it's a, it's a massive data set that follows folks uh, in four year periods that's meant to be representative of the US. Its design is actually uh, the intent, the way it's built is to evaluate um, uh, things like uh, Medicare, things like food stamps and its effectiveness on moving folks out of poverty. Um, so a little bit of an interesting data set, although it uh, has a huge, great sample that's, uh, that's representative of the U.S. and collected data on, on this rental real estate ownership. Interesting. So, I mean, ultimately, what, what were you finding as you sort of went through this project? Yeah, a couple of different things. So we looked at home ownership in three distinct time periods. We looked at uh, what it, who, who was invested in rental real estate in 2001, who was invested in 2004, and who was invested in 2007. 2001 was really, as it was starting to ramp up, but before it got really hot, 2004 was when it was skyrocketing, and 2007 was um, immediately after sort of the bubble had started to, uh, had started to uh, bust. So following those three periods, we looked at the characteristics of who was invested and how that changed, uh, how that changed over time. 
And what we saw was there was a slight increase in real estate investment across the U.S., um, not not massive. It went from something like 4.5% of households to 5% of households um, had direct ownership of rental, uh, rental real estate. And uh, I, I want to also point out, they could have owned a REIT. We did not capture that. So there, I'm sure there were other folks that were invested in, in uh, real estate in other ways, shapes, or forms. We didn't capture that when this is. They directly owned rental property uh, themselves. Um, and what we really saw, the major takeaways uh, were people were over leveraged like crazy in, in housing. And you saw people tended to have an affinity. So for example, those that were housing burdened on their own home, and housing burdened is defined as spending more than 30% of your income on your basic housing um, expenses, uh, were more likely to then own rental property <laughs> to add on top of that. And what came out was a picture of profiles that people that like real estate really like, <laughs> really like real estate. Um, and uh, that's a major problem, a major problem from a financial planner's uh, point, point of view in terms of diversification. Because not only do you have a lot of money in real estate, that's typically going to be correlated together in some way, shape, or form. Most homeowners are buying in areas they know. <laughs> you're getting, um, you're, you're getting uh, sort of, uh, um, uh, you're not getting the diversification of owning a house in Manhattan, Kansas, and Manhattan, New York, and Phoenix, Arizona, and all of that. Those assets are going to be even more correlated with each other, both in terms of likelihood to fill based off of the rental market as well as the housing market related to those uh, related to those prices. So massive over-reliance on real estate. And then we also sort of, um, I think, continue to add to the body of literature that says some of the differences that we've seen uh, in ownership rates of assets and risky assets between um, different races, different ethnicities, um, is not due to a, um, uh, is due to two things. One, um, there's been different economic makeup of those groups. And if you hold those economic makeups um, equal, uh, that is, if the average white household looked exactly like the average black household, much of those ownerships of, of different asset classes goes away. Uh, but we did see, we did see in the literature still that um, African-Americans um, were disproportionately likely to invest in, in rental real estate. There was something about that. And that carried along, you know, the long history of, of a focus on um, a distrust of banks, distrust of non-tangible uh, assets, and really a, a desire to have something um, tangible. So that's that there's there's some interesting things in there, and I'd I'd like to dig a little bit deeper there. Um, you you talked about sort of the concentration of real estate being a a problem or a challenge for financial planners, and and boiling that down simply, right? You know, when you buy a house, suddenly you're you know, on your balance sheet or your statement of net worth. Um, we've suddenly, you know, potentially quadrupled or, or 10x or 30x the numbers on there. If you're just out of college or something, right? Maybe you had 20,000 in student debt and $15,000 in the bank, and suddenly you've got a, an asset worth $300,000 on the liability side and on the on the uh, asset side. 
Um, and that suddenly changes the figures quite a bit. And it might take you decades to build up the 401k or something to offset that concentration in real estate. Um, there's been some interesting writing recently about sort of, you know, we, we commonly accept the mortgage as a vehicle to own real estate, but we, we shun margin or that sort of thing in the markets. How do you feel about sort of the adoption of that, that added, added leverage risk uh, within broader client portfolios? You know, that's great. That's a great framing, and I think that's important. I would pull out a little bit uh, the use of a mortgage for a primary home and then the use of a mortgage um, uh, related to uh, investment real estate that is the second home. I think we have to separate those out a little bit because the reality is uh, there is still a lot of uh, feeling about owning a home. There's a lot of really good things that are that are tied with that home ownership. and. When it comes to home ownership, uh, there is a financial conversation, but there's also a humongous value conversation. And that exists in the secondary real estate uh, market and things like that that you gotta talk about. But related to the primary home, uh, I, I think you first have to really have strong conversations with a client about their value system and how and how they align. You know, from from a from a planning perspective, cash flow is king. It's absolutely king. And I've done lots of research on. Uh, financial satisfaction, retirement satisfaction, all of that. And as it turns out, for the most part, your financial makeup doesn't matter as much as the stress that people feel on cash flow and their ability to meet um, their needs. So you can have all this conversation about things and some of it does matter. I don't mean to say that it doesn't matter. But for that client, um, it's really important to understand their goals and then keep a keen eye on the stress that that home is going to uh, put in their cash flow, laying on top of that student loans, as you mentioned, laying on top of that car loans. Uh, in my situation, laying on top of that daycare, which is about to be two daycares, uh, um, and, and making sure they're making prudent decisions, not just on what they can afford for mortgage today, but what they can perform before the next year and the next year and the next year, knowing those projected expenses that, that we can, that we can do. Sure. I mean, opportunity cost is sort of an interesting part of this conversation. Um, I, I sort of go back to my, you know, your home is the best worst investment you can make piece. Right. Um, you know, I, I have a joke with my clients quite often or, or with new clients, like, look, we can, we can make you financially independent tomorrow if you're willing to live in a cardboard box. Um, you know, nobody's taking me up on that, up on that offer, but that's, that's a real consideration and concern, right? Is that quality of life? Because from, for most people, the perspective is you do have to have a place to live. And so it's sort of a, a mandatory component of the financial picture to have some, some sort of a housing cost. Whereas when we look at investment assets, it's, it's certainly a different piece. Um, you, you raised another point earlier, uh, sort of regarding some of the, the racial and, and demographic makeup of, of ownership. Um, this may get sort of uh, into the weeds or, or onto the periphery of your research, but uh, when we look at issues like the wealth gap, uh, when we look at the things like the stock holding puzzle and all of that, um, you know, we see stock ownership and equity ownership by a largely white audience, by an affluent audience. Um, and you and I know because of compounding math, and I hope all the financial people listening to this understand compounding math that, you know, the average rates of appreciation are just that much greater in certain asset classes historically than others. Do you think that this, these preferences for tangible assets and, and these high risk assets um, is contributing to that? Or do you think it's maybe more noise than, than a big driver of what we're seeing there? 
Yeah. So, so a couple of different things, uh, Daniel. Before before I, I I skip off this, I wanted to share one thought. I don't know about in Colorado where you are, but in Kansas, what we saw over the last six months is a lot of people investing money in their homes, but they really have no chance of of getting out. So for us, you know, we knew we were cooped up at home with COVID. Uh, we built uh, we built a deck on the back. We redid. Uh, we put new carpets in. We did things that rationally meant no sense, but we were living at home. If you look across our neighborhood, there was a new pool there. There was a new deck there. There was a new deck there. There was a new pool there, a new hot tub, <laughs> new hot tub uh, there. Uh, and I think it'll be interesting uh, to see and see what the implications are of that long term, both on, on um, how long people stay in their homes, as well as hope as um, home values, because we've acted, seems like in this last year, in ways that are a little incongruent with the ways we've normally operated around um, our homes, which has um, been beneficial in the, in, in the joy I got to actually spend outside of my home on my porch <laughs> instead of instead of inside. Uh, so there's that well there's that you know well-being part of it. Uh, but it'll be interesting the financial implications. The other thing, Daniel, is once you start spending money, you never stop. So the longer you can stay in a cheaper house. Uh, the, the better, uh, because you're, you're rarely going to want to downsize uh, um, willingly. So the longer you can stay cheaper uh, and do that. Related to the, wealth, uh, to the wealth gap, you know, there are just so many structural differences. And that's where, from a research perspective, honestly, we've struggled a little bit um, uh, based off of our analytical methods. And uh, I won't try to get too much into the details, but our, most of our methods basically assume that you can hold everything else equal to find the unique impact of a variable. So the unique impact of being white versus black versus that, with the same net worth, with the same and um, with the same income and things like that. But the reality is, if the distribution of those variables is very very different, that is, the average white person has a net worth of of 180,000 and the average African-American black, uh, black American has a net worth of negative 50, that estimate is going to be skewed. <laughs> it just, it doesn't work. And there's a, a lot of, uh, with the evolution of technology, with the evolution of statistics packages, we're better able to sort of isolate, okay, is it really a racial difference or is it a failure in the method, methods that we've used to identify the true effect of, 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 of race um, on whatever that outcome behavior is? I think we're getting much better and more nuanced about that because the, the reality is, is the answer isn't easy. <laughs> the answer isn't easy. And a lot of it has to do with financial socialization and expectations. I, I grew up, I was expected to go to college. Um, I grew up and I was expected to save 10, 15%. Uh, that wasn't a decision. That wasn't a decision for me. Uh, individuals that grew up in other households, the idea of saving 10% is like a mammoth goal. The idea of attending college is, is, is so different. And so it's just really important. Um, the wealth gap between race has to do with far more um, structural things behind race um, than race itself. Um, at least that's my, that's my read. 
So, you know, I'm a financial planning practitioner today. Most people who are going to listen to this are hopefully either going to be or already are. Um, so with your research and, and what you found, what can we apply to our practice today? What can we talk to our clients about or think about when we look at these questions for our clients? Yeah, Daniel, and I think, um, I think we've walked through a, a little bit of that. Primarily, you're going to have two conversations with your client. One is going to be about that primary home purchase. And the second is going to be about if they want to invest in rental real estate. You're probably going to have that primary home conversation with a lot more than, than second. For the primary home conversation, it really is making sure you understand your values and the cash flow implications and how, and how that relates. And I'm pulling in on top of that, not just this paper, but what I've seen about financial literacy, uh, sorry, financial um, satisfaction and, and the outcome on top of that. The second make sure they understand their mortgage and the implications of that. Lots of research uh, during this time, I did a paper that was on mortgage choice between uh, fixed rate, variable rate, and interest-only mortgages, showed that uh, most folks are driven by that lowest initial dollar payment, <laughs> not necessarily understanding while that fixed payment may be higher, um, it's consistent or that teaser rate on that adjustable rate mortgage. Um, and they've limited those quite significantly, uh, quite significantly now. But they followed that to find the home that they can get and make sure they're thinking about it from that long-term uh, cash flow perspective and stability. So that's really, really important. There's probably nothing new, but I think this literature has really highlighted the importance of, of that related to uh, investing in rental real estate I think it's really important to understand why a client wants to do that um, and help them understand and frame that within the context of the larger investment decision. So, you know, uh, you um, take, take a, a, young, a young entrepreneur uh, that puts $20,000 into a business, uh, loses all $20,000, uh, walks away broke. Okay, that stinks. A uh, young entrepreneur invests in real real estate, puts 20% down on a $100,000 house. Uh, the market goes downside. He has to foreclose. Uh, his net worth is now far less uh, than, than zero. Um, there's that downside uh, that you don't necessarily see in some other areas, depending on the use of borrowing, depending on the use, uh, the use of, of, of leverage. Um, and it all comes down to making sure that you understand how that value choice that I believe in real estate in this market relates to that overall portfolio construction. Is it that you want to own real estate? Is it that you want to own investment property? Um, are, are REITs an opportunity? Are there ways for you to do it without having to, you know, make sure you have renters? Uh, make sure that you um, that you uh, can um, keep keep all the all the appliances working. You can make sure the lights work. Um, etc. That holistic picture and understanding that almost invariably, almost invariably, unless they have a lot of money, they are going to be overweighted in real estate. They choose to invest in rental real estate and they need to understand those implications. All right. Well, Dr. C, thank you for, uh, for your research and for sharing with us today. Hey, thanks for having me on.